Progressive Rugby League. G'day, John O'Duncan. Friends, go with me on this. It's a late Saturday Arvo. You're catching up with some mates at the local for a meal and some rugby league action. It's a brilliant vibe. The publican has the sound turned up to just the right volume. Not too loud as to drown out your witty hotcake hot takes, but loud enough to tune in when you need to. Your crew are all as emotionally invested in the rugby league movement as you are, so there's no pretense around playing it cool to outsiders who just don't get it. It's quite the typical evening, really, with healthy dolps of humour, passion and genuine outrage when a ref's call goes the wrong way. And it's the last of those elements that you're focusing on tonight. Because you noticed an extra couple of chins in a photo circulated on social media the other day, chins that previously hadn't made themselves known, you're now on some desperate bound-to-fail alcohol abstinence kick. The accompanying lucidness is at first a strange and lonely place, but as the night progresses, you realise you now have the privilege of a fly-on-the-wall distance to proceedings. You're now seeing your mates in a completely different light. You can even see your usual self there too. And as your friends shake fists against the latest refereeing injustice, a cartoon light bulb appears above and to the left of your rapidly receding hairline. All of a sudden, you're beginning to realise something that pricks you so sharply you're tempted to break that fledgling three-hour-old beer ban. It's the realisation that you and your mates don't know what the f*** they're talking about. Observations that would on a typical night seem reasonable or even righteous are just plain dumb, shrouded in amber and emotion. You realise that that decision you're all railing against, no one even knows the rule it's based on. After such a humbling experience, you commit to being a more reasonable human in the future and to even learning the rules of rugby league football so you can avoid being that guy. But as good as your intentions are, nothing ever quite manifests. And who can blame you? Life's busy and Sando's 40th the next week was a tour of the local microbreweries followed by a gastro pub meal with the footy on in the background. It was a good night to be fair, even though the ref cost you a tidy payout on your same game multi. The circle of life. Never fear though, hapless individual. The Progressive Rugby League Podcast is here for you. Okay and me. For your edutainment, we have organised a mock rugby league encounter that will help clear the air on some of those grey areas that leave you shouting, what was that for? At a passive but massive television screen nailed to your wall. And we are so lucky to have the great Matt Chechen along to guide the ride. Matt was one of the most accomplished NRL referees of his generation and has frankly seen it all. As a touchy, he saw the 2005 NRL grand final infringement that no one else did to rightly deny the Cowboys an early try. And as a ref, in possibly the greatest, most intense rugby league atmosphere ever witnessed, he stood his ground on a tournament-defining knock-on call when many might have wilted under the pressure. It is a real treat that Matt has agreed to adjudicate this mock match and talk about his experiences in rugby league while he's here. And it's a real pleasure to welcome him to the Progressive Rugby League podcast. Matt, hello. Hello, Jono. How are you? I'm very well. What a privilege to have you on the show. Thanks for taking the time to come out of retirement. Now, Matt, while uh, the players are warming up behind us in this mock game, a couple of quick questions. You, You left refereeing a couple of years ago. Have you found yourself tempted as you've maybe ambled past a social game of tennis in Tari or something? Have you found yourself tempted to call a let? Uh, are you appearing at local bowls clubs around Australia, awarding shots? Uh, I guess what I'm trying to ask is, are you pining to adjudicate? Yeah, yes and no. Uh, on our trip around Australia, we we got to Perth and um, the locals heard that I was in town and uh, asked if I'd referee one of their uh, A-grade games. and. Mm-hmm. Uh, I said yes, and yeah, it was a cracking game. It was, I think, 18-16. Only had to blow four penalties in the whole game. Nice. It was photos afterwards and presentations, and, and it was a great day. And then on the Wednesday night after that, I got a call from the, the Referees Association saying, oh, look, uh, one of our three referees has gone down with COVID. Are you still in town? Can you do another game? <laughs> and I said, yeah, sure, why not? And it was a very different game. It was bucketing down with rain. There were sin bins, there were send-offs. Uh, it was about 40 to nil. And, uh, yeah, I, uh, I, uh, I remember coming off that game going, OK, <laughs> that's it for good now, I think. <laughs> Fair enough. 
Okay, Matt, we're, we're getting close to kickoff and it's, it's getting quite exciting here. As we clear our minds before the big game, can you quickly tell us why you got into refereeing and, and what your observations are about the character traits of people who put themselves in the position to become a, a big-time rugby league referee? Yeah, mate, it's... Um, I can speak personally for myself. I, I was a, a kid that loved the game, uh, went to a, a big rugby league school, but realised very early on that I had pretty much no talent when it came to playing footy. I was always one of the kids left out of the sides that the two popular kids chose for their teams. And um, one day a, a school teacher, the PE teacher actually, uh, Ronnie Palmer, who's a famous NRL trainer, threw me the whistle. And uh, after dropping the whistle, I picked it up and he said, you go and referee. And that was as a 12-year-old kid and I loved it. I was out there with my mates. I was part of the game and uh, went and got my ticket a couple of weeks later, actually failed the rules component of that, but it didn't matter because Balmain referees were short of short of officials at the time. So I got my ticket, and uh, that was in 1986, and, and yeah, went on from there. Yeah, it's interesting. I guess at the age of 12, you don't realise what can become of a profession like that. At what point do you realise, oh, hang on a second, this is quite a, an intense position where there's going to be a lot of limelight. Was there a realisation that you thought, oh, geez, I'm, I'm in past my, my neck here and I didn't even realise it get to this point? Yeah, look, and I think as a, as a person and as a referee, the reasons why you officiate change for a big chunk of the first stage of my career all through juniors and probably even when I first got the first grade, I enjoyed that limelight. I wanted it to be all about me. And then I realised pretty quickly that uh, that's really high risk. Uh, a good official accepted by our game is one that goes unnoted. Mm. And um, towards the later end of my career, I you know, I did whatever I could to make sure it was about the players, about the two teams on the day. I'd step into a game when I had to. Um, I'd also step out of a game if it meant that we got better footy. And, um, and yeah, and I think... In hindsight, if I could have identified that earlier on in my career, it would have been a, a probably a better one. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay, Matt, it's game time now. No more small talk. Time to, to blow that whistle ref to send that ball soaring to blow that whistle ref. Uh, actually, just on the whistle, do, do, <laughs> do referees talk about different whistling styles? You know, For example, your style was very different to the badge who had uh, fingers pointing in all directions. Uh, are, there icons of, uh, are there icons of rugby league whistling that referees talk about around the fire? Yeah, mate, look, it's, um, there was a saying, if you can't, you know, if you can't do the part, act the part. Um, and, you know, as a kid, I actually, I actually took up being a paper boy in the local area just so I could practice my whistle because the neighbours got pretty sick and tired of me blowing it in the backyard. So, um, so yeah, I... I prided myself on having a decent whistle. I think early on in my career, I used it a bit too much. And I probably overcompensated for it later on in my career, not blowing it enough. <laughs> Fair enough. Now, as this is a mock game, and as it's my mock game, and because this podcast is essentially a vanity project, I'm playing in this game. In fact, you'll, you'll soon discover a lot of the play revolves around me. Uh, I'm a pretty big deal around here. And by here, I specifically mean my bedroom. So, Matt, I've kicked the ball off and we're getting into the other team's face, really muscling up in this first set. But then you blow a penalty against me for being inside the 10. You went too early, Jono, you calmly convey. I'm aghast. Me? I I didn't go early. What you talking about, sir? Matt, when can a player actually start to move off the 10-metre mark? Yeah, Jono, technically, um, it's when the ball's played with the foot. Now, you and I both know that the ball's not often played with the foot. Uh, it depends on what cycle we're at with crackdowns and things like that. But, you know, as a ref, we try and weigh up a few different things. And in this scenario, you know, a side's coming off their line. It's probably early in the tackle count. And that's when defensive teams try and dominate. And they'll push the limit in trying to keep that side pinned down on their, their try line. Um, so as a ref, we're quite vigilant in, in calling out hold, hold and go, you know, and in this case you've, you've gone a bit early and uh, yeah, that means one or two metres advantage and that's that's something we'll jump on. Right, so every play, are you calling hold, hold, go? Is that every single play? Pretty much. It depends on what else is going on around us at the time and it depends on what field position we're in. 
you know, a side coming out from their own try lines in tackles one, two and three, we know that the 10 metres is absolutely vital. Mm. Take that same scenario down to the other end of the fields on tackles three, four and five, where it's less about defensive speed and it's more about structure and spacing in shifting the ball than, than the 10 metres is probably less, right. uh, what's the word, less, less crucial. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay, fair enough. But look, I'll give you that one, Matt. Maybe I did go a bit early. Um, okay, we're into the grind now, and our team has gained an early field position advantage, due largely to my finely honed game management skills. Uh, we're on the attack about five metres out. I've gone into dummy half to create something magical, but just as I'm about to throw a try-clinching pass to a rampaging forward, the marker plays at my arm, and the ball flops forward. You rule knock on. I plead for a penalty. Not square, sir. Offside, sir. I'm calling for something, anything. Matt, when can a marker reasonably play at the dummy half in that situation? Mate, in that situation, I'd probably put my hand up and say I made a step up. Oh, really? uh, Yeah, if if you're attacking the line, the marker has to be squeaky clean generally any any time when a dummy half is picking up the ball and passing without taking any steps mm. and that marker infringements he'll get he infringes he'll get penalized for that it's again it's you know people scream out for consistency but our game's very gray and you know that happens down the other end of the field and and we're probably less vigilant on that mm. and if i took a couple of steps after picking up the ball am i fair game yeah, you are, mate. You yeah. are. As long as the markers done everything right, then then you are fair game. You know, everyone wants to see footy played, mm-hmm. and if everyone's doing the right thing, we'll allow that as much as we can. Okay, okay. I may have taken a step, but uh, look, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt there, Matt. I think that was the right decision because I'm, no, I'm, I'm, I'm putting it, I'm putting up my hands. <laughs> I think I think that's one on Monday that I'll uh, I'll be shaking my own head at. Okay, no worries. Look. The arm wrestle continues, Matt. It remains nil all after 17 minutes, but we've got the clear upper hand. We've just got to nail our processes. And look, a couple of the 50-50 calls wouldn't go astray, if I'm brutally honest. But be that as it may, the opposition is on the attack about 40 metres uh, out from our line. Their playmaker, my long-term nemesis, Aldim, uh, has put in an early tackle grubber that has been swooped on by their flying centre. Our idiot fullback is up in the line, even though I told him this play was on. But anyway, Matt, You've awarded the try, and the bunker will check for offside. As the replay comes up on the big screen, I'm in your ear that this bloke is clearly offside. I say, you know, both feet have to be behind the kicker. There's only one there, sir. You can see it. Am I right? Will the bunker confirm the try or overturn the try? What's the rule there in terms of what constitutes on or offside from a kick? Basically, the chase has got to be behind the ball. You know, any part of his body that's on the ground has got to be behind the ball when it's kicked. Now, often with camera angles, you'll you'll look at one camera angle and you'll think, yeah, he's behind and others, he'll, it'll be online. And, you know, to be honest with you, even as, you, as a touchy uh, side on, I often would swear that Billy Slater was a mile offside. Um, but on... Uh, review and on replay they generally time their chasing pretty well it looks very very different you know you can only look at one thing at a time and the melon's trying to judge a few things at the same time and you know often it'll look different to what it what it appears on telly okay so just one foot has to be behind the ball the foot that's on the ground has to be behind the ball the foot that's on the ground has to be behind the ball so you were right it is a try it's six nil to the opposition damn Okay, fair enough. Just while we're on the bunker, did you spend much time in the bunker, Matt? I don't recall hearing your dulcet tones uh, much while I was looking at a KFC ad. No, mate, I didn't. I did spend a little bit of time in the bunker. Uh, on the field, I was pretty good ref. I saw it once. Yeah. I had a pretty good opinion, and I'd be right most of the time. Yeah. In the bunker, I'd, uh, I'd look at one camera angle and then think, yep, that's a try, and I'd call for camera seven, <laughs> and I'd go, oh, I'm not sure now, and by the time I got to the third camera angle, I'd have absolutely no idea. <laughs> I'd get confused and often refer back to the referee's on-field decision. It's a different skill set. Mm. Uh, uh, refereeing on the field's a lot about, you know, from what you see and feel and player reaction and, and you take all of that into account. In the bunker, it's it's more of a, a process-driven uh, scenario where you've got to take all the evidence, take all that into account, analyse it and make a, the right call. A lot easier to do from the lounge room chair than it is in the bunker with the enormous pressure you get at the time. Yeah. 
And so by the sounds of things, you didn't enjoy bunker work as much as being out in the field. Is that, is that fair? Yeah, mate, it is fair. And I wasn't very good at it. You know, <laughs> when, you know, I, I put my hand up to do it reluctantly. And uh, yeah, it, it didn't take much convincing for the uh, NRL official to say, uh, yeah, we agree with you, Chet. You're, uh, you're probably better uh, <laughs> on the field uh, as a ref or as a ref's coach in the box supporting the referee. Right, fair enough. Okay, so it's it's 35 minutes in now. We're, we're somehow down six blot. Uh, I'm holding it together for our team, to be frank. Uh, no one else has a, a clue today. So I put up a, a speculative bomb. It's well-weighted, of course, for me to challenge for the ball and presumably regather and score a memorable try. But as I'm approaching the fullback, I'm unceremoniously knocked over. Play on, you yell, with an accompanying spreading of your arms. I'm horrified. So he knocked me over. Matt, why didn't you penalise the blocker on this occasion? What's the rule there? The rule is that the, the player on this occasion was actually contesting the ball. Uh, right. He was going up to the ball, he was running in the same angle as the ball, and he was looking at the ball. Uh, as long as he ticks all those boxes, he's fine. If he's not going for the ball and actively runs as a position as a blocker, as long as he runs and gets to a position where he can become stationary before he makes contact with you, mm-hmm. then he's fine. Right. If he's getting there at the same time, if he's getting there after you and impedes any opportunity you get to go for the ball, then he'll be penalised. Mm. It's a lot often, to think about. Yeah, there is a lot to think about, mate. And often we'll go off a few different things. And, you know, if, if that blocker is running towards the ball, looking for the ball and jumping for the ball, but does it a mile early, mm. which is obvious that he's, you know, he's sort of hedging his bets, then then we'll probably lean more your way and say, no, he's not making a genuine attempt to catch the ball. He's, he's doing it to, to get in the way. And if he happens to look like he's going for the ball, then he'll try and get away with it. Mm. Okay, fair enough. Well... It's oranges now when we're, we're down 6-0. I've experienced better halves of football, to be honest, but we're still in it. Uh, Matt, while the players gather their breath and brace for the inevitable spray, let's talk about your time in the refereeing ranks. Was there a period in your NRL career that you reflect on as your most enjoyable? You know, for example, was there a period when you and the refereeing hierarchy were really gelling or when the prevailing interpretations really suited your sensibility? Yeah, mate, there was, uh, you know, there were a few times uh, when I suppose Bill Harrigan was my boss. Billy's style of uh, coaching referees was very much about the individual. I want you to be individuals. I want you to be out there enjoying yourself. And I want you to also do whatever you can to make the game flow. And that was, you know, it made for great footy. But with all things in rugby league, if you do something for long enough, uh, players and coaches find out a way around it and you know the, the rules are stretched and bent that much that it becomes you know something that you can't maintain you know referees like me are the reason why scrums have become a non-contest because if I go back to probably when before I started referees used to repack scrums two or three times I uh, would often blow 10 to 20 penalties in a game on scrums mm. and a lot of the times actually decide a game with a penalty and a scrum. And, you know, the the public and the game didn't like that, so referees stopped adjudicating scrums and basically said, you know, you feed the ball, you win. And, you know, now we've got probably two generations of players that have never had to contest scrums and they pretty much are, a, you know, a reason for an ad break and a break and, and that's about it. So, mm. you know, ad- adversely when we've had, periods in the games where we've had rule corrections, I'll call them that. You mm. know, playing the ball with the foot is one of them. Mm. You know, defensive lines were moving up way too quickly and players are playing the ball too quickly and if the game become very scrappy and one of the ways to create some more distance and some time for everyone was to ensure that players stayed on the 10 until the ball was played with the foot. Mm. Now, I hated that as an official because it meant me having to make more decisions and stop-start the game more often, mm. but I also understood that you know, the game needed that to, to self-correct. And uh, it's always been the case. Uh, people call it rule of the week. And, you know, the referees don't make the rules or come up with the crackdowns. Uh, however, they generally understand why the league are saying that we need to do it. And mm. it's never to benefit anyone in the office. It's, it's genuinely done for the, the best interest of the game. Yeah, and I guess it's important to understand that 
as you kind of intimate there, the the game as it's played is is fluid, and yes. the way that uh, players are trying to take advantage of rules, and the way coaches are, are telling their players to, to you know to hold down a bit longer because refs are being more lenient, then inevitably uh, refs are going to have to blow a few more penalties to to react to that. Yeah, definitely. Right, you know, few more penalties change the way we talk. Different positioning. There's there's a heap of different subtle differences that that go into you yeah. know changes that you know no one's critical of players and coaches adopting new strategies to overcome them because that's what they get paid to do and mm. you know they they need to win and they need to figure out a way to do it within the 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 laws of the the current time and we've had you know several different tactical changes within our game you know there was when i started there was no one had ever heard of a grapple or a chicken wing and mm. a hip drop or a, a cannonball or anything like that you know a big chunk of the rugby league's highlights before every season were shoulder charges, mm-hmm. and now they're illegal, and they're illegal for for really, really good reasons. So, yeah, you know, and if I look back at career highlights, I think to go back to your, your original question, one that stands out, I suppose, is being appointed to Australia and England in a Four Nations final in England. Mm-hmm. I was the first non-neutral referee to be appointed for some 20 or 30 years mm. uh, and that was a really special time the origin series i refereed a uh, second time round was amazing first time round wasn't so good uh, we all got dropped from one game um but uh yeah there's there's been you know having the privilege of refereeing darren lockyer's last game both here in australia and also internationally mm. different things like that my first game running out there you know, at Leichhardt Oval, bucketing down with rain was a, a special time that I'll never forget. International games, Wembley mm. Stadium. You know, just I've, in talking to you, mate, I, I would never imagine as a 12-year-old kid that I would have, one, refereed the people, the number of games and the location of games that I had, let alone make a career out of it. Because when I started refereeing, there, were, there was no such thing as full-time referees. They were all school teachers, policemen, mm. things like that. Yeah, pretty surreal stuff when you think about it. Yeah, it is. Now, Matt, uh, you came out publicly as a gay man several years ago while still at the height of your refereeing career. I've read bits and pieces about your experience over the years, but keen on your reflections with a bit of distance from the game. Um, is it an experience you remember with, for want of a better word, a satisfaction? Uh, yes, yeah, satisfaction. Uh, a little bit of regret, mate, that I didn't play a, a more of a, a role in the in the gay community. I think initially I didn't come out for a few different reasons, but one of them was because I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to be the token gay referee. I, did, I was fearful of being discriminated against for being gay. You know, often a lot of the homophobia that comes into your head is just that. It's, it's, it's worry about what might or may not happen. And my reflection on the game has... You know, based about you know my my involvement in the game as a gay referee has been nothing but positive. I I expected a lot to change. I expected things to be different on and off the field, and in hindsight, I was pleasantly surprised that it just made absolutely no difference at all. Mm. Was it harder to build yourself up to come out publicly or privately to your family and friends? I imagine they're both very different, but both very daunting things to build yourself up to. Mate, I think I think it's pretty. They were pretty much on par. Yeah. Um, you know, my passion and my direction. All I ever wanted to do was be a footy referee. So I was very, very scared about losing that. And equally so, I was. You know, someone's son. I was also someone's dad. You know, I was extremely fearful about being uh, rejected by any one of those people. You know, and the fear was real and it was intense but the reality was after coming out it was you know it was it was nothing but fantastic mm. well thanks for for sharing those reflections Matt. much appreciated we'll, we'll chat more later uh, as half time mm. is, is now over i've had a rocket put up me by the coach uh, what an asshole i've been carrying this bloody team but anyway the, the second half is well underway now we've leveled up thanks to a fluke try by my halves partner Honestly, about six defenders fell over on his way to the line, but of course, uh, the sycophantic press will be calling for his origin promotion at my expense. Uh, but it's it's six all now, and, and we're on the attack about 10 metres out. 
I feel like they're, they're getting gassed. So I want to get a repeat set and then take advantage of tired legs. So I grub her for the in goal. Uh, unfortunately, their fullback scoops up the ball and dives on the ground half a metre out from his own try line. Voluntary tackle, I yell in, in your direction. I don't hear a whistle, so I assume he's fair game, and I pick him up and ragdoll him in the in goal, all miraculously in the one motion. Uh, instead of hearing adulation of the crowd, I hear the pee of your whistle. Uh, why are you penalising me, Matt? And, and why didn't you penalise him for a, a voluntary tackle, sir? Well, mate, if you wouldn't have made the tackle and if he would have laid there and you didn't touch him, I would have penalised him for a voluntary tackle. Right. Um, however, in the interpretations of the game, you can touch him and he's held instantly and it's a surrender tackle and you can then jump on him and take a little bit longer to get off. Or you can, through force, try and drive him back into the end goal by diving on him and, and using your momentum and weight to, to force him back. Right, one, thing okay. one thing you can't do is lift him up and lift him into the end goal. I suppose you're right then. Okay, look, I'm having a tough game, to be honest. We're, we're heading into the last 10 minutes of the game. They've gone up 12-6, their second rower. Ran over the top of me for their second try. You know, where was my support, my Tony Carroll? I'll be crucified for this. But, you know, I've been playing with a bunk shoulder, Matt, for a month just quietly. You won't hear about that in the press. I also visit sick kids in the hospice, but you won't hear about that either. All right, they have their tails up and they're keeping us pinned down in our own half. Uh, we could use a penalty. Uh, on the last play, I put in a kick. And as I'm kicking the ball, I'm challenged by their, their thug front rower, who I'm pretty sure slept with my sister. Hallelujah, you give us a penalty. Now, old mate here, he's complaining that I'm play acting, but you're, you're having none of it. Matt, what's the rule there? Why have you penalised him? Mate, I need you to tell me what happened again because I was uh, getting some information from a touch judge and the bunker and the match official all at the same time, so I'm not quite sure. <laughs> right. <laughs> For me to jump into the game when the scores are that close and that late of the game, it must have been pretty obvious. So yeah. uh, can, you, can you explain it again? <laughs> I'm, I'm kicking the ball here, Matt, and I'm challenged by their thug front rower, in parentheses, who I'm pretty sure slept with my sister. But that's you don't have to worry about that piece of information. You give us a penalty. Uh, now, I'm interested from you. Why would you penalise in that situation? Old mate's complaining that I'm play acting, but you're having none of it. So what's the rule there? And Why have you penalised him? Well, mate, you know, if you've kicked the ball and the player in question hasn't made a genuine attempt to make a tackle immediately as you kick the ball, mm. then he's been penalised for either a late tackle or mm. not making a genuine attempt to tackle you, yeah. i.e. to take you out of the game so you can't regather the ball or take any part in that game, and that's an unfair advantage. I think that's a fair call then. Well, well played, sir. Look, we've levelled up in the ensuing set thanks to what I believe was a, a boring block player. I didn't see it, really. I was getting my brow taped up in back play. But in any case, it's 12 all heading into the last few minutes. Uh, there's a break in play because their winger is getting treatment for a leg injury. They're, they're calling for a hip drop, but you resist. Uh, we, we've had momentum, and, and this break is perfect for them, to be honest. And I'm venting my frustration at you, Matt. Why can't we just play on here, sir? We used to be able to play on. Well, what's the general process for, for a break in play for an injury? Well, mate, look, first and foremost, referees uh, do have a duty of care for injured players. And secondly, uh, we're not doctors. Um, so we don't know if someone's genuinely hurt or they're not. So, you know, we, we will always act on the side of caution and act in the best interest of the player that we deem or that seems to be injured. You know, if, if upon review, then that player is deemed to have been faking the injury or doesn't require medical assistance, then the league will take that into account. There are laws around that because it was prevalent in our game a few years ago where now, if you know, a game is stopped and the trainer has to come onto the field to assess a player and that player must leave the field until that set's complete or the other side regains possession. Okay. Thank you for clarifying. Now, while we've got this break in play... Uh, and I know you've been out of the game for a little while, but can you shed any light on what a hip drop is? Mm, mate, they're tough. Uh, they really are. Mm. It's, and and I'm going to be totally honest with you here. 
And I had, you know, the hip drop wasn't there when I refereed two yeah. years ago at all. But it probably was, but just no one ever realised it until a few players started to get seriously injured from it. And live on the field, it just looks like a player's come in around the waist and slid down and, and come down with the player. Mm. You know, even now, I think I'd be, I, I would say I'd bat no higher than 30% and being accurate live on the field. It mm. is something that needs a couple of replays uh, for it to be accurate. Look, and referees may become better at it with time, with experience of viewing them over and over again, but I give credit to the guys and girls out there officiating now because, um, yeah, it'd be a really, really hard thing to adjudicate on live, mm. and it's something that, that I think only technology can get. Yeah, I guess that's where the the help of the bunker comes into play. From what I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong, if a player is kind of getting his or her legs off the ground and putting all their weight as they're sliding down on the player's legs, that is kind of what they're looking for to adjudicate it as a hip drop. Is that roughly right? Yeah, mate, that is roughly right. You know, if it's just the legs sliding down, mm-hmm. then it's probably okay. But if it's the whole body sliding down on that player, then it's something upon review that, that stands out a little bit more and is, is far more dangerous. Yeah. And more broadly, there's this Breaking play is, is getting quite extensive. Can you take us through the anatomy of a crackdown, be it a hip drop crackdown or a kick pressure crackdown or playing the ball with your foot, as you mentioned earlier? How does that normally play out? Is is there generally an edict that you simply have to follow or is it something that you might workshop as a group? Uh, how does it generally play out? But it generally plays out through we get a direction from the hierarchy of the game saying, you know, we want referees to start penalising for roll balls. Mm. And we get that memo and we have a meeting about it. You normally get a group of officials in there, the 20 of us going, how the hell do you want us to blow a penalty? When do you want us to blow a penalty? Mm. Just say the score is 16 all and someone rolls the ball, do you want a penalty in front of the post? Like we, You know, as officials, we know by then, by being in first grade, that, you know, very rarely does a referee come out any good for deciding the game of football. Mm. And we're much more comfortable in in supporting edicts that come through from the league if we feel comfortable they're going to support us if we carry through with it. Sure. I remember a game I did at Cronulla several years ago where it was a period where you know, the game required us to crack down a lot of things. And mm-hmm. I think I blew 33 penalties in that game. Mm-hmm. Uh, Simbin Cameron-Smith. Um, and I was highly applauded within the league. I uh, was very highly supported and from the refereeing ranks at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as, as a person and as someone who, who loved footy, that was so uncharacteristic for me and my natural ability as a referee. However... I had to toe the line. I had to toe the line for two reasons. One is because the game dictated it, and the mm-hmm. game always sort of does everything for the best intention. And secondly, I had to do it for my other fellow referees. It would be very unfair for me to go out on a Friday night and let everything play on and get a great game of footy, mm. and then for the next uh, guy or girl to go out there Saturday afternoon and crack down because they're going to get criticised for it and... You know, I'm going to get praise for, for referring one way. And it's confusing for the players, mm. you know. And I think that was the, the big beauty about two referees when we had it for the time that we did is that it brought the squad a lot closer together. Uh, the way we officiated was closer and probably more consistent than it's ever been. Mm. Because we had to. We were out there refereeing together, so we had to be on a similar wavelength mm. um, in our interpretations and our adjudications. And, you know, we, as a group of referees, we're all competing with each other for the big games and the top spot. Mm. But we also know that we all share the criticism based on our worst performance every weekend. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's generally not Matt Check and was was a shit referee on Sunday, it was, oh, the referees are all shit. Mm-hmm. Um, so we do what we can to referee well. We do what we can to support each other and we do what we can to be, you know, the best that we, we can. Mm. I actually remember that Cronulla versus Melbourne game. It's a, obviously a pretty famous one where you're Simbin, <laughs> Cameron Smith. And it was during that period where there was a lot of outrage about the number of penalties that were being blown. And I have to admit, I wondered at the time, because you you kind of, I I guess on average there was like, I don't know, 15, 20 
penalties a game and people were sort of up in arms about it. But, you know, as you said, you blew 33. And I wondered at the time, and I think it was intimated by Phil Gould at the time, wondered if you were making a point because obviously we, we know that you love uh, the free-flowing game. And, and I wondered at the time, I wonder if Matt Chechen, or Chechen, sorry, is making a point here. But but it sounds like you weren't. You were, the way you're framing it is you're supporting your group and, and your mates and, and doing what you knew you had to do. Mate, I, I can honestly tell you I wasn't proving a point, but because I was refereeing in such an, an unnatural way, an uncharacteristic way for me as a, an official, mm. I had just had no, I, I couldn't, I couldn't do an in-between thing. Yep. I, you know, I can referee my natural game really well, but if you ask me to be a technical referee, mm. I just lose my natural game. You know, throughout my whole career, if you looked at my stats, my errors, my missed penalties and things like that, mm. I was always a poor referee. But if you asked a lot of players and a lot of coaches who they'd want in their big games, they'd say, yeah, we'd, we'd be happy to have Church as a referee. And, and you know, look, you do need to be accurate, but I think above anything else, a, a good official, especially in the NRL, has to have an understanding that, you know, the game is about entertainment. So if a side's getting flogged 30 nil, there is no benefit in blowing an offside penalty for a forward that's made 30 tackles. He's been two feet offside. He's buggered. He's not making an effective tackle. You know, there's there's no benefit in that. But technically, as a referee, I should have penalised him for being offside because it'll come up my stats as a missed penalty. No. Um, and that's where, you know, uh, referees want to become good and they want to be the best that they can be. And you can either go off your stat sheet and that's what everyone has been focusing and was focusing probably more so up until two or three years ago mm. because it's very easy to prove statistics. Mm, mm. But in the process, you can really stuff up a good game of football. That's and that's why, you know, and, and I make no secret of this, and it's not just because I retired. I said it when I was refereeing that, you know, if a game's close and the sides have been pretty fair and equal in their level of discipline, for me to blow a penalty in front of the post, it has to be a real, real major mm. infringement, mm-hmm. you know, and and players knew that and they accepted that and they, I think they praised me for that, you know, but technically I was wrong a lot of the time. Yeah, well, that's interesting. I didn't realise that um, there were stats kept on referees, but of, of course there would be a professional unit, there would oh, be mate, stats. Yeah, yeah. And, made it, and there wasn't when I started my career because the game and job security for my boss and their boss's bosses mm. didn't require it. Mm-hmm. But, but one way you can prove things is through statistics. The only problem with statistics, they don't allow for good entertaining footing. Mm. Um, so, and that's when Graham, Graham honestly, come back back into the, the league as, as an official, you know, asked me to come back because I had retired first time round. I, I was going to England. He said, Matt, you know, I can I can promise you this black and white method of refereeing and this statistical method of refereeing, I want you to be accurate, but I also want above everything else for officials to enhance the game of football by jumping it in to when they need to, when mm. a side has genuinely been disadvantaged, but staying out of it, even if it means you know, being slightly inconsistent or, you know, wrong in some instances. Yep, no, fair enough. Now, Matt, time back on. A few minutes to go. We've got them pinned down in their own 40. It's 12 all, just a reminder that the, the scores are very close. We just need to, to force an error and capitalise. I run out of the line to put on a big shot on their stocky lock. I shape up for an enormous hit, but their lock stumbles as he approaches and runs into my shoulder. He's knocked out. Their players want my blood. They're claiming it was a shoulder charge. I'm denying all accusations. You call me out. The crowd is baying for a send-off. What are you looking for to make that decision? And what's your call? It's a big call, Matt. It's 12-all. I don't want to put any pressure on you. It's 12-all. It's a pretty big call. What are you looking for and what's your call? My call is... Whoever the, the guy or the girl is in the bunker at the time to review every angle that you can mm-hmm. and and make a decision for me. 
because, you know, the league's been quite black and white on this. It is the duty of the defender not to make contact with the opponent's head. Mm. You know, there was a game probably four weeks ago where a player made contact with an opponent's head with the knee as the player was... Oh, yeah. Diving to the ground. I forget who it was, mate. I remember seeing like it. Cronulla it game ter- or something. I can't yeah, remember. Yeah, it was, mate, it was a terrible injury. Blood was coming out mm. of this player's head. And there was absolutely, clearly no intention by that defender. Mm. However, there was uh, a substantial injury made to the head. Uh, and as a group of officials, we erred on the side of caution, and I believe, and I could be wrong, that that player was put on report. Mm. It wasn't Simbin, but was put on report, and I'm not sure what the follow-up with that was. I think there was just a caution issue to that player. Mm. You know, sometimes accidents do happen. Uh, However, the game is genuinely concerned, you know, with protecting players everyone comes to see players everything is about our game is all about the players mm. uh, and that's why they've, they've built this pretty strong stance and ensuring that the defender does everything they can not to make contact with the opponent's head okay that that's that's cleared that up a bit and look the the call has come back from the bunker and you send me off we're down to 12 men uh with only a minute left i'm, I'm shattered i'm dirty i'm filthy i'm cursing i'm cussing so much so that I don't realise that uh, we end up winning 14-12 thanks to my halves partner kicking a winning field goal from 45 metres out. I guess I should be happy. You, you blow full time and we're done. Matt, what a game. Thanks for adjudicating. Hope that wasn't too taxing. Um, no, it wasn't, mate. The good thing about it is I didn't have to make a ruling on an obstruction because after three <laughs> decades of refereeing, I'm still not clear on <laughs> <laughs> I forgot about the, the obstruction. Yeah, I'm yeah. glad you did. Because, Next time. Uh, I, I, you know, through different stages of my career, I go, oh, I figured it out now. I know what the rule is. And, uh, yeah, then, you know, two weeks later, I go, nah, I've still got no idea. <laughs> I think we've got outside shoulder, inside oh, shoulder, something about a shoulder. Yeah, it's hard. It, it really is hard. Um, I remember refereeing a game at, I think, Gosford Stadium, and Luke Phillips, who played for the Roosters as a fullback oh, yeah. in the grand final, he was a referee for a certain period of time, and he was my pocket referee. Mm. And um, I remember blowing a penalty right in front of the post for an obstruction, and I saw him in the background talking to a player who had complained about it, and he was gesturing yeah. like the hand in front of his neck as if to say, oh, that was a shit decision. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, um, yeah, obstruction's one of those curly ones, and it's probably, again, another reason why I never made a career as a bunker official. <laughs> Matt, do you, do you have a decent gut feel as you as to how you've performed straight after a game, or do you have to wait until a review to know how you really went? No, you, you generally know, and I think most officials know yeah. at full time. There's, sometimes you'll know one or two decisions that you got wrong. You know, you've just reacted poorly or incorrectly. But there's generally probably a handful of other decisions where you're going, oh, God, I'd love, I want to look at that on, on replay to see how that looked. Because, yeah. you know, reality is we're judged on how it comes across on telly. And mm. often what you see on telly, and I'm going to go back to my touch judging days, forward passes are a classic example. Yes. I've, I've ruled on forward passes that I've been right in line with, perfect position, no one's impeded me. And I look back on the same pass on a TV replay and it just looks totally different. Mm. And, you know, it's... Remember Timmy Mandra, Queensland referee, saying the art of refereeing is refereeing on how it looks rather than what you see. Oh, wow. Um, and, and, it, and it's true because, you know, sometimes you'll come in there and you'll get asked by your boss, why did you make that forward pass call? And you'll just say, mate, it looked different. Yeah. It just looked totally different. I was in good position. No one was in front of me. It just... I know it was fine. <laughs> you're saying, like, you're not putting that in my stats, are you? There's no way you're putting that. <laughs> oh, I stopped arguing for my stats a long time ago. I just thought, oh, well, I, I just got to go with the flow here. Yeah, yeah. Now, just on, on forward passes, because that, that kind of I, – I, when I'm watching games with my mates who uh, purport to know – the game or people who who are sort of more casual viewers the forward pass is always some something that no one gets like because obviously the the rule is 
that you need to pass the ball backwards, but it can float forwards. But people are like, that's that clearly went forward. Is there like a rule that people come up to you on the street that is like the the most common rule that people get wrong? Yeah, mate. I think look, I think forward passes would definitely be up there because you know if if you're on a train doing 100 k's an hour and you throw a rock out of that train. Mm backwards it's going to travel forward mm. just through sheer momentum of that train and the same is said with the forward pass if a, if a winger is running flat down a sideline and he throws the ball on a line backwards it could depending on the length of the pass it could travel five or six meters forward along the mm. ground mm-hmm. you know the only way to fix that and to make referees easier to adjudicate is to change the rule to say that the ball can't travel forward along the ground. Mm. The problem with that is that would it would make a game a very deep game. You know, yeah. backs would be standing a lot further back. They've talked about chip technology and stuff like that. Mm. I, I don't know how far away or how close it is, but I think if that technology come into play, I think it, a lot more passes that would look forward would be uh, let go because... You know, technically, the the person throwing the ball has done everything right. As long as it comes backwards out of the hands, mm. what happens afterwards is really irrelevant. Yep, yep. Very, very interesting. Now, Matt, we're we're almost done. Now, you mentioned you kind of touched on this earlier, but I'm keen to to get a sense of some of your your most memorable moments in the middle you know you kind of touched on a couple of big games that you're in but is there a a moment that stands out from one of those games be it a a pre-game raw an atmosphere or even a conversation with a player during or after a game uh, or or something along those lines is there something that you just look back on and that still has vivid vivid memories for you oh mate a couple of things you know things i'm kind of proudest of Uh, i was the first referee that shook both captains' hands on the field after the game. Okay. Uh, I found it was a good opportunity to say thank you for the opportunity to uh, referee them. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes to say, sorry, mate, I didn't have my best performance. Mm-hmm. It was something that I, I just did because I felt like it was the right thing to do. I, I took a fair bit of pleasure out of uh, Todd Greenberg, the CEO at the time, saying... He'd noticed me doing it, mm-hmm. and he thinks it's a good thing, and he wanted all referees to do it. Mm-hmm. And some referees were reluctant to do it, and they said, oh, look, aren't we aren't we playing with fire going up and shaking a captain's hand mm. after, you know, potentially a dodgy call that could have cost them the game? Mm. But players generally know that, okay, a referee can make a mistake and it can affect the outcome of the game, but there are generally lots and lots, hundreds of other decisions that affected that same outcome of that game. Mm. And, you know, players and coaches have been great with my stuff-ups throughout my career. I remember, you know, a famous stuff-up I made was in a 2013 semi-final where I awarded Cronulla a try in the seventh tackle. Um, You know, and it was a massive deal. I was the number one referee at the time. I was going to England after that season to do a a World Cup. Mm. And, mate, after that game, I thought I would never referee again. I certainly got dropped. I didn't do any more semifinals. I didn't go to England. Mm. Uh, And the next year, uh, we're in uh, New Zealand for the the Nines tournament. I remember going up to Neil Henry, who was the coach at the time, and I said, Neil, can I have a word? He said, yeah, sure, Chetch. I said, mate, I just want to apologise for the semi-final seven tackle. Mm. And he just goes, stop. He says, Chetch, he says, in that same game, Jonathan Thurston lost the ball twice in the second half. Mm. Mistakes happen. My winger dives into the corner on the last minute of the game. If he does what he trains for his whole season, he'll, you know, he scores a try and we win. He said, don't apologise. He goes, I know you didn't feel great from it. I understand how easy it is to get a a tackle count wrong. You're doing a lot of other things. He said, please don't apologise. Which, from then on, it made me understand that players and coaches who are involved day in and day out know how easy it is to make the most simple of stuff-ups. It just happens. So, yeah, decisions like that. I I think the the biggest thing that affected me was the uh, World Cup game in in New Zealand, uh, oh, the England Tonga game. Uh-huh. Um, I made the decision, I was sure of it. Uh, I had made the same decision on the set before for the other side, I was sure of that. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, I didn't go up to the bunker because I didn't need to. I remember being uh, praised for it directly after the game for making the right call. Mm-hmm. Went back to the hotel, had a couple of drinks, uh, got a phone call from uh, the New Zealand Federal Police saying, do not leave your hotel. Uh, we're monitoring websites. There have been death threats against you and your family members, which I had no idea about. Got an, a police escort to the airport the next morning, got rushed through customs, had a police officer outside our house for a week afterwards. Mm. You know, my son got death threats, my mum got death threats, my sister got death threats. Uh, it really, really shocked me because I'd refereed a lot of international footy and international footy was generally really good fun and the players treated it, you know, they're playing for their countries, but it was it mm. was generally just, it often, it, up until that game, it, it lacked any sort of in real, um, what's the word? It, it lacked the constant NRL... Consequence or intensity. Yeah, consequence and scrutiny. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Players had reached their pinnacle for the year and this was their their moment to enjoy and shine. Mm. Um, and then it was it was done and dusted. You often, you know, had dinners with players after games as a big, you know, both teams would normally catch up after a game for a mm. dinner and a few drinks and it was it was really good. So, yeah, that, that was probably my biggest shock. And I don't think I ever... Well, I, you know, I was probably the the form referee going into that. There was mm. uh, myself and another, and the final was the next week. And I knew I wouldn't get the final mm. because as my boss, if my boss puts me into that game, even though I was the form referee and I did make a genuine stuff up, then he, they're going to get criticised for saying, well, hang on, Chech has been under enormous pressure all week. What are you doing giving him mm. the final? Mm. You know what I mean? So, you know... Sometimes it's not fair as a, a referee, but, you know, the same said for sports people in general. You, you've got to take the wins when you get them and the losses when you, you also get them as well. Yeah. Thank you for sharing those reflections, Matt. With a, a couple of years out of the game now, or out of the, the front line of the game, how are you reflecting on your refereeing career? Mate, I, look, I think, you know, I, my reflection is one of, wasn't I lucky? Just... You know, you're talking about a kid who used to stand in front of the telly of a Wednesday night watching the Panasonic Cup with a whistle in his hand, trying to do what they did on telly. You know, to be able to fulfil your dream at the highest level, share many experiences on and off the field with other officials and players and spectators. I think the thing I'm proudest the most of is not from the number of games I did, but just how I was regarded within the game. I I genuinely feel like everyone felt comfortable with me refereeing any game. Yeah. You know, yeah, it was, you know, the, the send-off I got in my last game, you know, I, I still get emotional sometimes thinking about it. I just had never mm. witnessed that before and I certainly didn't expect it. And when, you know, Souths did that guard of honour, it was just, you know, it, it's again, it's just one of those memories that I'll, I'll cherish and take forever. Yeah, I- I remember watching that and, and getting goosebumps myself, and I guess it's a reflection of the respect players had for you and the way you officiated games, but I'm sure there's an element of respect for the bravery you showed in, in coming out uh, as, a, as a gay man while in the middle of your, your career as well. And obviously it was a, a good experience uh, at the end of the day, but you know there's enormous uncertainty and, and no one can really understand what that feels like to build up to so i think there's probably like an implicit uh respect on on many fronts there mate yeah i think it was look it could have been uh, me get being a gay referee that uh, players respected and admired but i i genuinely think the reason why i was respected was i was the type of ref that would say sorry to a player or mm-hmm. mate i'm not sure but i had to make a call or I get that you're frustrated or tired because you've you, you know you've tackled for six repeat sets and mm-hmm. you know I'll I'll let that one slide. It, it was just empathy. Yeah, it made I think it was, and, yeah. and you know often empathy means being inaccurate. So yeah, look, I I do I I'd like to say I have no regrets. I, I think big stuff ups I have made, which have cost uh, teams games. You know, like the seven tackle one is is a massive regret. But I, you know, I played that 
that scenario back a few times and, you know, that it happens a lot. Cricket umpires get it wrong and they've got a counter in their hand and they're not <laughs> running around and they're not yelling out. Yeah. It, it just it just happens. Uh, the same way, you know, a, a, a player will drop a sitter. But you still have those regrets. I suppose the reason why I called the quits when I did is that, you know, the melon was full. I was, you know, awake at night thinking about decisions that I'd made earlier that uh, the, the day before. And it just, you know, no amount of therapy and uh, the sports psych just basically said, Church, you know, you're, you're full. I can I can tip a little bit out each time. He says, but you've been doing it for a long time. And, mm. you know, no one likes making poor decisions or feeling responsible. And you've just, you, you've probably you've done everything you've wanted to and, and maybe now it's time. And I thought, well, look, I'd rather leave on good terms uh, with, with everyone within the game than than squeeze another season or two out of it. You know, and, and, you know, it also helps too when, you know, you've got a supportive partner and another, uh, something else to look forward to. You know, we, we're we looking forward to travelling Australia, uh, looking forward to living outside of Sydney for somewhere different. We still don't know, don't know where. I was always... As much as I love my footy and I love my refereeing, I made sure that it wasn't the only thing that I was focusing on at the time. Mm-hmm. I think it's important. People say, oh, you're not as committed or not as dedicated. No, I, I strongly argue that because you put all your eggs in one basket and that basket gets stolen, you've got nothing left. Where if you, you, know, you spend a fair bit of time on your family and your friends and other social activities, you know, when, when footy or refereeing doesn't really go to plan, you've got other things in life that, you know, keep you looking forward. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I'm certainly not a, you know, I can certainly, I'd be lying if I said I was your most dedicated, most thorough official because there are many, many more more dedicated referees than I were. And I kind of did that on purpose because I, I knew what worked well for me and that was having a lot of distractions. You know, I remember one state of origin I did. It was a great game. It was up in... Suncorp, I think I only blew four or five penalties. It was a cracking game of footy. A journo asked me after the game, how did you prepare for the game? And I said, well, to be honest with you, I was in the hotel room doing a tender for a company that I worked for all day and the, dead, the deadline was five o'clock this afternoon and that's all I thought of, which, which actually helped me referee really well because if I didn't have that distraction, I would have been lying there all day going, oh, this could happen, that yeah. could happen. And I would have refereed the game 20 times before I'd gone out to do it. Did you win the tender? Uh, yeah, we did, actually. What a night. We did. It was for Sydney Water at the time, and I remember it. Yeah, no, it was, um, it was well worth it. So, um, <laughs> and so what, yeah. what, what next for yourself here? We're talking about, you know, the future now. What, what comes next after your big road trip? I've currently uh, taken on the chair position for the PRLMO, which is the Professional Rugby League Match Officials. So I'm now looking after the guys and girls that are currently in the squad. Fantastic. And that means, you know, looking after their well-being from uh, day to day to negotiating their EBA with the NRL. It's a voluntary role. It's one that I can do at the moment because I really, I do, I care for the game and I care for all officials. And then depending on where we buy or where we, we live, I'm not sure what I'll do for work. I may stay involved in the game in some capacity. I may not. I just want to, you know, I lived in Sydney for a long time and, and there's no regrets here, but you, you miss out on a fair bit when you're, when you're referee as far as your, your social life. And, you know, it's you get told on the Tuesday where you're going the following weekend and it makes it pretty hard to plan things. But, yeah. you know, now I want to just think about us and what we want to do and where we want to live and, and maybe um, look at work around that. You know, if it's if I'm a postie or a dog walker or a, you know a lawn mowing business, I'm I'm just not sure. I'm not fussed. You know, we'll see. That sounds pretty good, Matt. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to join the pod. You've been very generous. It has been educational. It's been fun, and you've been a great sport. On behalf of everyone in Podland and all fans of rugby league, thank you for your service to the game and. All the best with your road trip and what comes next. Matt Chicken, thank you for joining the Progressive Rugby League podcast. Thanks, Jono, mate. It's been a pleasure. Appreciate it. Progressive Rugby League. An ornament. 
another timely reminder of the importance of referees in our game. As I always say, be as kind to your referee as you are to your bartender. Be as generous to your referee as you are to your sibling. Sure, they might exasperate you at times, but sooner or later, you'll need them. Plus, it's the bloody right thing to do. You know it. All right, time to call it. Thank you, ladies and gents. A pleasure as always, and a pleasure that is all mine. Until we next meet somewhere at a Rugby League Rules Committee meeting, Rugby League Hobby, and see ya.